This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us for the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls. Our guest here today is Rachel Steyer, a writer and associate professor at the Theater School at DePaul University. She is the author of The Steel, A Cultural History of Shoplifting. Rachel, your previous books were on burlesque performers, and you're a professor of theater. What led you to write a book on shoplifting? (laughs) Well, I have a number of answers to that question. Um, I mean, I think the first thing is that I'm interested in topics that are about subjects that people generally ignore, that somehow seem too trivial or odd, so that there's a place on the bookshelf for them. And, you know, the question, why do people become strippers or why do people shoplift? Those are both questions that drive my work. Um, And so that's a general answer. A specific answer is that when I was trying to finish my first book, I became obsessed with the Winona Ryder trial, <laughs> and which I'm sure you remember. And, I do. <laughs> and I just got swept up in it, and then I realized that no one had ever written a cultural history of shoplifting going from the beginning of it, whenever you define that, to up to now. And so I started to research it, and it just kind of took off. And then I saw it everywhere in many different incarnations. So I'm also interested in things that that mutate as history moves forward, that take different forms. For example, shoplifting started out as a crime, and then once psychology, modern psychology came around, kleptomania got defined, and then now there's shoplifting addiction and boosters. So Part of what interested me is the different ways that we define shoplifting in different eras. Well, you know, it's it's strange that shoplifting would be this ignored subject and that we consider it, you know, petty crime. Uh, in your book, you say that shoplifting cost U.S. realtors $11.7 billion in 2009. Why do you think that the public doesn't seem to view it as a serious crime? Well, it's hard to get the public interested in it because I think there's this preconceived idea that it's just a pack of gum, or as people would say to me while I was researching the book, it's just little Johnny stealing a pack of gum or little Susie stealing a tube of toothpaste. And it is that, but it also is a multi-million dollar professional Industry. In other words, there's a huge market for boosted, which is boosters are professional shoplifters, boosted goods. So I think people, you know, when you start lining up all the different crimes, I think shoplifting just seems trivial. There's something embarrassing about it. And I think compared to something like murder or even grand larceny, you know, <laughs> people ask, what, why are you stealing something so, so tiny? Although you talk about in the history of shoplifting that shoplifting was for a couple hundred years in England a capital offense. Yes, yes, that's a fascinating aspect of it, really into the 19th century, shockingly. I think that the last person was hanged for shoplifting in, I'm not looking at the book right now, but I think 1823 or around there, which is quite late for capital punishment. (laughs) 
So it's very complex, uh, our attitude, and very also there's many different aspects of it, and getting into the corners of that fascinated me. You talk about Little Johnny shoplifting <laughs> gum. What products are shoplifted most often? Are people usually shoplifting to keep something or to sell it elsewhere? There's different categories that we could talk about, and I talk about some of them in the book. Sort of high, you know, desirable items are things like brand name liquor, like vodka. Also, condoms are very frequently shoplifted. Also, underwear is very frequently shoplifted. Also, steak is very frequently shoplifted. Steak. Now, how are you shoplifting meat? <laughs> that seems very unsanitary. <laughs> yes. Well, the way people shoplift meat is uh, often the way they shoplift other things, which is they stick it somewhere on their person, or they... You know, if they're a more professional shoplifter, they have booster garments whereby they stick the meat in their, you know, they, they have special hidden pockets or special hidden bags where they can stick the items where they can't be readily detected. And you sometimes read about people being detained outside of the store and having, you know, 10 pounds of steak on them or something that they've <laughs> hidden. <laughs> Yeah, which is like, well, how did you walk from the store to your car, you know? But so there's a really wide variety of items that are shoplifted, and it really depends on why the person is shoplifting. There are many different reasons to shoplift. There's no, I wouldn't say that there's a usually, when you ask, you know, are people usually shoplifting to keep an item for their own personal use or to resell it? There are different studies a few different studies. There's actually, I should say, as a kind of sidebar, there's very little research that's been done on shoplifting. One of the reasons for that is that it's hard, you know, it's hard to see. It's an invisible crime often, despite the levels of security that are now in stores. And so it's hard to even measure it. There are a couple of studies that are measuring it, but in terms of like deep studies that go back for decades, that just doesn't exist. So what we know is spotty. I would say it's going to be at least another decade or so before we have a kind of good pool of research. I would say both is the answer to the question. Both, people both shoplift for their own personal use and they shoplift to resell it. Right now, uh, if you talk to retailers or if you talk to loss prevention people, they'll complain about eBay people reselling their stuff on eBay, which has become a huge problem. And they'll also talk about swap meets and people selling their stuff at flea markets and other places like that where it's hard to trace the stuff. Is there a profile of a compulsive shoplifter, someone who's not doing this as a booster, someone who's planning on selling it? What's the pathology that produces a compulsive shoplifter? I mean, again, there's a lot of disagreement about that. I think some people will say that a shoplifters are driven by anxiety. Others say that shoplifters are driven by depression and just the the possibility of the adrenaline rush that you get when you're stealing something will, you know, the promise that that will jolt them out of their depression is enough to drive them to it. There are some connections between shoplifting and uh, childhood sexual abuse. So there's a really wide, I would say there's a really wide range of behavior. There isn't any one 
person who shoplifts. In fact, I would say that one thing I discovered writing the book is that it pretty much cuts through every demographic, um, men, women, rich, poor, etc. What rehabilitation is possible with someone who shoplifts? Does jail time serve as a deterrent? Well, that's tricky. Um, you know, if somebody is really determined to shoplift and really in the lingo addicted to shoplifting and they need it psychologically, it is very difficult to get them to stop. There are some groups that are focused on their kind of 12-step programs for shoplifters. There's also been some studies with pharmaceuticals to stop shoplifting, kind of like um, they're similar to drugs that have been used to suppress the urge to gamble, for example. And as to jail time, um, I would say no. I don't think jail time really serves as a deterrent. You know, Even the, capital punishment didn't serve as a deterrent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the truth is, um, I mean, and this varies really wildly, but you can shoplift a lot and not get any jail time. I mean, I'm trying to think of a specific example. I mean, I think uh, in researching the book, there's just one person who's coming to my mind who I interviewed who had shoplifted, I think, 30 or more times before getting any jail time. You know, I think, you know, given the overcrowding in prisons, I think judges are often reluctant to sentence people to jail for shoplifting. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why, according to retailers, boosters have become such a problem because, you know, they've gotten, they've sort of snuck through this loophole and so they've shoplifted little bits in different states you know, usually every state has its own felony threshold for shoplifting. Obviously, a felony is more serious than a misdemeanor and can get you more quickly to jail. But if, if boosters are clever about it, it can be quite a long time before before they get caught up with. Are there any trends in legislation addressing shoplifting through the states, or is it very haphazard? It's very haphazard. As I said, there's a different felony threshold in every state. And that ranges from $1,000 to zero. I think Indiana, if you steal, it is just immediately a felony. And then in other states, the item you steal, shoplift, has to be over $1,000. And then there are certain states where certain, you know, certain items are exempt. Like, I'm trying to think... Um, in Texas, I'm trying to think what were that. You know, there are certain foods. I like think you I said citrus. Citrus. Oh, in California, citrus. Right. Any orange so is 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 exempt. <laughs> you know, so the, some of the legislation seems in need of an overhaul. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I hadn't fully appreciated before reading the book was the size of the loss prevention industry. Oh yeah. Can you tell? A little bit about the uh, tactics and, mm -hmm. and the industry. Sure, sure. Well, the loss prevention industry as it exists today basically started um, in the 70s. I mean, if I don't know how old you are, but I mean, if you go back to um, when I was a child, there was not really any security in stores the way there is now, and there was not really any loss prevention industry. It is now an industry with its own conventions, its own lobbying organizations, several, and its own 
you know, fairs, industry fairs, where these different gizmos and inventions are marketed to different stores with the promise that they will stop shoplifting. So stores now use everything from live people, guards, to closed-circuit TV, which, of course, mostly is digitized now, so you can get really good pictures on the TV of who's shoplifting from you. To those tags, I'm sure you've seen those tags that are electronic that go off if you leave the store. To ink tags, which if you try to take them off, ruin the garment. To more, I guess I would say more newfangled things like you know, things that just seem like something out of, a, you know, a science fiction uh, novel or, or film. The Panopticon? <laughs> yeah, exactly, like the Panopticon. So I spent a lot of time with loss prevention people trying to talk to them. And, you know, I think it's really hard. I mean, I think it's really hard. I think it is, it's a huge problem for stores. Law enforcement is mostly overloaded and cannot devote a lot of attention to it. So they, they have they stores feel they have no choice but to have their own private security systems. And there's no training, um, generally speaking, or very little training for loss prevention people. So that in and of itself is a is an issue. What are security guards allowed to do that perhaps police would be prevented from doing? <laughs> Well, security guards do not have to Mirandize you. I mean, when you're in a, it's, it's strange when because when you're in a store, you are in the store's property. You know, it's it's like as if it's a space that is a private space and you're borrowing it. So, you know, you're you go in there, you the consumer, and you're encouraged to browse, but. The stores, of course, have their own people to deter you from taking anything out of it. It's essentially like going over to their house. <laughs> so they don't have to Mirandize you. Uh, they can detain you. Those are the, those are the top two things that, that come to mind. I mean, there have been a number of exposés about this at the beginning about 10 years ago like Macy's and other stores were kind of tweaked for abusing, I think, what we would consider our rights, the rights that the police would um, ordinarily respect. Well, and you said there are cases where shoplifters have been killed by security guards. Yes, right. I write about that in the book. There have been some some fairly well-covered cases where people have stolen from the stores and then the security guards have gone out and tackled them in the parking lot and they've died and the situ those situations are all quite complicated but the, there have been enough of them that it seems like there is something wrong here with what's going on and there have been a number of counter lawsuits and so on against the stores but still it continues to happen well, you have an excerpt for us. Would you mind reading it? Oh, no, I'm happy to do that. So uh, this is, let me just say one word of kind of introduction. This is from the beginning, the very beginning of the book, when I am watching a scene on a monitor. The woman moves past the cosmetics counters to the up escalator. 
On the second floor, the hat, the socks, and the headbands are no longer visible. A little while later, a camera picks her up again on the third floor at the Gucci boutique. She is still wearing the second hat, but you cannot see its price tag. She peels a white strappy dress and some other items from their hangers and piles them on top of her bags. She visits Marc Jacobs, Yves Saint Laurent, Jill Sander, and Chanel and chooses clothing from these boutiques. It is 519. She brushes up against a rack of Chanel coats. A camera lingers on her back as she sets foot on the down escalator. Two naked alabaster mannequins recede behind her as she adjusts the garment bag over her shoulder. The woman is now heading toward the exit. A camera zooms in. She cuts through the shoe department. She glides to the plate glass doors. Another camera zooms in, this time on her back. Another picks her up from the front and another from her side. She passes a cash register. Her reflection looms in the glass doors as she walks toward them, and just before she pushes past the shoes, she tosses the garment bag once more over her shoulder. She is outside. Like wind-up toys set in motion by the department store Oz, two security guards, a stocky man and a woman in a long, dark skirt, walk stiffly after the woman into the parking lot. You can just make out a confrontation in the shadows. A third guard joins the group. The woman tilts her head, listening. She doesn't resist. It's not as if anyone is a criminal here. When she comes back inside the store, she is flanked by two of the guards. The trio walks back down the marble aisle. The guards have divvied up her bags. There is no tension among them. They appear to be exchanging pleasantries as they stroll to the down escalator. They vanish, their destination, the holding room in the basement, where the woman will be interviewed and where she will be turned over to the police. The screen goes fuzzy. It's 5.37 p.m. in Saks Fifth Avenue, Beverly Hills. Winona Ryder is about to join that notorious category, the celebrity shoplifter. Wow. Thank you, Rachel, very much for talking with us. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.